1: Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Roll Cast, and check out our brand new Substack newsletter and website at letterrollpodcast.com. We've got archives of every episode sorted by genre, era, guest, co-host, and mini-series. It's also a great way to support the show if you can afford it. Let It Roll is a pantheon podcast and you can listen to more great podcasts, at www.pantheompodcast.com. Today, Nate is doing a telepathic interview with the late John Phillips and his co-author Jim Jerome to discuss his memoir, Papa John. Email us at letterrollpodcast at gmail.com. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy.
2: It's time to let it roll. I'm your host, Nate Wilcox, and we're doing another telepathic episode this week because both John Phillips and his co-author, Jim Jerome, are deceased. And I'm talking about the book Papa John, a music legend's shattering journey through sex, drugs and rock and roll. I also used Michelle Phillips's California Dreamin' as a source for this episode. And this uh, is uh, one I wanted to do before the series ended. I had never been into the Mamas and the Papas growing up, other than, you know, of course, I knew the hits uh, from the radio, from oldies radio. But they weren't, even though they were massively big in 66, 67, they were kind of from another era that I wasn't into. Like Mama Cass had a lot of showbiz type stuff, and it was a harmony group. I didn't really understand how harmony groups worked. I liked folk rock fine, but I liked it, you know, with a band like the birds where they were a vocal harmony group and a band um did up for the beatles a vocal harmony group and a band whereas i didn't really understand or appreciate vocal harmony groups growing up i would see you know groups like the temptations or the jackson 5 and my initial thinking was you know that the people playing the instruments were the talented ones and i didn't understand how singers could be musically talented too which is pretty stupid but uh, that's where i was coming from as a kid and in my big 60s phase in the 80s and 90s, I tried the Mamas and the Papas, but I found the full-length albums, like the version of, of Twist and Shout or Dancing in the Streets, were just feeble to me. And and when they would do uh, Sing for Your Supper and other kind of Broadway songs like that, it just reeked of old-school showbiz that I didn't dig. But for some reason, about 10 years ago, I got a hold of John Phillips' autobiography and Michelle Phillips' autobiography at the same time, and I read them back-to-back. Back. and found him utterly fascinating because both of those people, um, and Michelle Phillips is still alive, so I'll have to watch what I say a little bit about her, but John Phillips was certainly an effing scumbag to the nth degree. And reading her memoir, it was pretty clear why she ended up with somebody like that, that she she fit right in. And John Phillips is one of these people who, um, his autobiography is really interesting, really charming. He seems likable. But when you think about what he's describing that he's done, it's pretty appalling. Um, he was born in Alexandria, Virginia. His father was an ex-marine, I believe drill sergeant or maybe captain, and a World War one veteran, and his mother was uh, a cherokee that that his uh, father had met on the reservation, although she was adopted by her Cherokee parents. and it's not ever clear if John Phillips actually had Cherokee blood in him or not if if his mother was biologically caucasian or what but either way his father's alcoholism reduced his father to complete non-functional to being completely dysfunctional and when world war ii broke out his father tried to get back into shape and, and go back into the military but he'd had some heart problems and couldn't get back in and once he failed that physical for world war ii he just devoted himself to the bottle. And so John Phillips grew up with his father spending all day in the basement with a bottle of booze and his mother out working two or three jobs plus dating other men sometimes. And so had this completely dysfunctional childhood and, you know, becomes like a fifties era juvenile delinquent. He's about the same age as Elvis and Frankie Valley. So like Frankie Valley, he, he doesn't become a famous rock star until he's older uh, and even older than Frankie Valley. Frankie Valley got big in 62. John Phillips doesn't get big until 66, 67. And it wasn't for lack of trying. But so in the 50s, he's this classic car stealing, um, you know, juvenile delinquent greaser type kid. And um, but music is his his way out. And one thing that's interesting about his autobiography and Keith Richards kind of did this, too, was he grew up as this you know, child of alcoholics, this totally dysfunctional house he was embarrassed to bring people to. And he starts the book out in Long Island in 1980, when he has descended to the depths of heroin addiction, and he's become this massive drug dealer. He's talked like six to eight family pharmacies into filling out, you know, prescriptions for him at will, and um, he would swap cocaine for prescription medicines. And was doing it at such a scale that he ended up getting busted by the exact same narcotics task force that busts henry hill and goodfellas like the helicopters the whole bit and you know keith richards has a line about how john phillips was the kind of guy that you'd turn him on to heroin and six months later he's the biggest dealer in the long island area and that seems to be the case and you know phillips had to do some jail time and kind of got off with a plea but all of those pharmacists had their lives ruined and their careers destroyed because they were busted along with him. And, you know, that's just a sample of the kind of carnage that John Phillips left in his wake everywhere he went. Um, Music biz wise, he comes out of the, of the folk movement, the the post 1959 Kingston Trio era folk movement when folk was this big gold mine. And he had a group called the journeyman with himself a guy named Dick Wiseman, who was the instrumentalist, and a guy named Scott McKenzie, who would go on to become a popular singer in the late 60s, singing John Phillips' songs, most famously, uh, if you're going to San Francisco, be sure and put a flower in your hair, which was the theme song for the Monterey Pop Festival. That group uh, had a pretty good run. Um, they made some money songwriting for the Kingston Trio and others, or Phillips did, and, and put out albums and toured. But then the group fell apart because Scott McKenzie basically had mental health problems. And so and around this time, Phillips meets this 18-year-old girl, Michelle, uh, soon to be Michelle Phillips, uh, in San Francisco. And he's already married and has kids. And His long-suffering wife is, is left at home through all this. And he, he abandons her and the family um, to marry 18-year-old Michelle Phillips. And he forms a group called the New Journeymen with Michelle and banjoist Marshall Brickman. And that goes along pretty well because Phillips is a great harmony vocal arranger. Michelle Phillips was a stunning beauty and a fine singer. And Marshall Brickman was a really talented multi-instrumentalist, but um, Marshall Brickman had another career going. He was a comedy writer and um, he got an offer to be the the head writer on the Tonight Show starring Johnny Carson. And he took it. And that was the end of the new journeyman. Meanwhile, uh, Cass Elliott is this, um, you know, hefty, larger woman, large size woman who, um, is in a group called the big three that's, that's working the same circuits. Uh, she's, she's in the, uh, in this group with a guy named Tim Rose, who, um, wrote the song Morning Dew or has his name on the copyright for the song Morning Dew, which was made famous by Rod Stewart and Jeff Beck and others. And then uh, another singer, John Brown. And then later it was uh, Cass Elliot, Tim Rose and James Hendrix in the big three. Sometimes they put out records as Cass Elliot and the big three. And then that fell apart and she forms a folk rock group with uh, Zalianovsky, who's going to go on to become the guitarist in The Love Spoonful, and Denny Doherty, who's going to go on to become the lead vocalist in The Mamas and the Papas. And this group was called The Mugwumps. They played New York and The Circuit, and they uh, played some of the same gigs with The New Journeyman. And, and the, the foursome gets to know each other, John and Michelle and Cass and Denny Doherty. And, you know, John and Michelle are having this torrid honeymoon, and Cass Elliott and Denny Doherty are having this torrid platonic affair because Denny's not attracted to her physically, but he's in love with her emotionally. And the four of them become friends and have this pivotal experience where Cass Elliott brings LSD to a party. And this is 1964. So they're pretty hip. They're they're like a year ahead of the Beatles here. And they play the Beatles for John Phillips. And John Phillips has been an old fuddy-duddy and didn't like the Beatles. And then he drops acid and hears Meet the Beatles and his world changes. And they've they decide to form a folk rock group, but John Phillips is a fat shamer and and fat phobic, and he doesn't want to be in a band with a with a woman like Cass Elliot who's heavy. And they go um, to the Virgin Islands, and Cass follows them and 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 spend six months working on a song. But let's 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 hear one of their songs. This is a song called "No Salt on Her Tail," which is about Michelle Phillips and John Phillips's way of dealing with her. Um, promiscuousness was to give her a pass if you know she started cheating on him basically the first time he turned his back on her and you know i think the first time he went away for a weekend with his group she she um has an affair and and as you know reading her autobiography she's completely eyes cold about this this is just what i wanted to do and i did it and no problem so this is the mamas and the papas no salt on her tail And that was no salt on her tail by the Mamas and the Papas. And you can hear the brilliant harmonies and you can hear the L.A. wrecking crew uh, backing them up. Some of the some of the best Hal Blaine and uh, and company um, playing on those records. And they go to the Virgin Islands and spend most of 1965 uh, workshopping their material, playing in, in a club uh On the island, they had some money from from Phillips's songwriting success, and uh he has credit cards. And they basically end up maxing those cards out. They're spending the whole summer dropping acid. Phillips brings his children, Mackenzie Phillips and, I and his son, I think James, and these poor children are just left as feral. They're they're not taken care of at all by their druggy parents, and um. You know, John Phillips is the kind of dad who would leave cocaine out on the table. And if the kids got into it, well, cool. Let the kids have some fun. This just, as a Gen Xer, this is just tooth grindingly obnoxious, bad parenting, bad, bad parenting. And, We'll talk about the the incest allegations that Mackenzie Phillips made later on, but I want to be clear that she never accused her father of molesting her as a child, that, that what happened was they had an affair when they were both adults, adult crackheads, but adults. I'm not trying to make any excuses for John Phillips. I think he's the biggest piece of shit you could possibly be as a human being, but I just want to be clear. Um... That that's what Mackenzie Phillips has alleged, and, and nobody's accused him of being a child molester, although uh, just a mega creep and terrible parent. But anyway, they they form this group, and eventually. Cass Elliot works her way in. She's working as a she goes and gets a job as a waitress in the club they're playing in, and starts singing from the floor and joining in. And she's so popular and obviously a great singer that they have to let her in. And they come up with what's believed to be a cover story. Cass Elliot swore this was true her whole life, but the story is that her voice was a little bit too low to sing the harmony parts that John Phillips was hearing in his head. And then one day a bucket falls on her head and she gets a brain injury and suddenly she has three notes added to her range at the top. And suddenly uh, she can sing and she's welcomed into the group up. That's why they believed to be BS and that the real story was that John Phillips was just deeply uncomfortable about being in a group with a woman that was uh, plus-sized like Cass was. Um, ultimately, in the end, Cass Elliot, Mama Cass, goes on to be the biggest star in the group and and proved him wrong. Uh, and, and that's pretty satisfying because – it's interesting that you know John and Michelle are people that it's easy to dislike, but it's very hard to dislike cass l a you you know she was this Earth mother who kind of you know becomes this big star, she's very frustrated because you know she's got this love relationship with Denny Doherty, but he doesn't reciprocate at least not physically and then what John Phillips did know at this point is that Michelle and Denny had started having a physical affair, and Michelle and Cass are having this incredibly close almost obsessive friendship with each other. Cass Elliot is really educating Michelle and, and Michelle really looks up to her and loves her and goes ahead and has an affair with the love of Cass's life anyway. <laughs> but they, they get to LA before this is exposed or before John and, and Cass are, 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 aware of what's going on and they get to LA and, um, this guy Barry McGuire, who's a friend of John's from the folk circuit, has just had a massive number one hit with a song called "Eve of Destruction," written by P.F. Sloan, uh, recorded by Lou Adler at Dunhill Records. We've talked about Lou Lou Adler and this this whole circle on several episodes, and Lou Adler's one of the you know hippest hitmakers in L.A. and this excellent record producer. He's got the the wrecking crew you know at his fingertips, one one phone call away anytime he needs to cut a session. They show up at his office and. Um, Kim Fowley, the legendary scumbag who uh, behind the song Alley Oop and later puts together The Runaways, is trying to sign the Mamas and the Papas. They pulled up to his house first and he's trying to hustle around and get the money together and get a deal together. And he gets it together the next day. But in the meantime, uh, the Mamas and the Papas have taken a ride up to the Dunhill Records offices and Lou Adler's already signed them. So they're, they're instantly this hot property. Uh, when they get to LA and people hear their material and it's no surprise, it's things like California dreaming and Monday, Monday, and, and, you know, um, Andrew Lee Goldham, the Rolling Stones manager was, was in those offices, uh, a few days later and got to hear, got to be one of the first people to hear what he called their national anthems and was blown away. And, and, you know, immediately tells the Stones, wow, there's this great folk rock group, um, that's, that's cutting records on Dunhill and they're going to be a big thing. And sure enough, they were they, they massive smash hits, um, right out the gate. They originally were going to provide California dream to Barry Maguire as this follow-up to Eve of destruction. But, um, McGuire had this really growly bass singing style. And the more that John Phillips and Lou Adler listened to it, the more they were unhappy. It had the angelic mamas and the papas backing vocals, but, Maguire, and in particular his harmonica break on the song, just weren't cutting it. So Phillips and Adler wipe off um, Maguire's vocal take and his harmonica part and re-record, keep the backing and the backing vocals and just get Denny Doherty in there to record a new lead vocal and bring in a, a flautist, a jazz a flute player. Um, they, he was actually a brass player, played saxophone as well, and, and they, they bring him in and he picked the flute uh, and, and you know the epic legendary flute solo on California Dreamin'. That becomes this massive hit. Then Monday, Monday becomes even a bigger hit. And then John Phillips and Cass Elliot realize what's going on with Michelle and Denny behind their backs. And literally no sooner is the group exploding than they implode because that betrayal completely broke Cass Elliot's heart. It enraged John Phillips. He was willing to look the other way. Uh, with Michelle's philandering. He was an older man, et cetera, et cetera. She's this young beauty. He understands. But when push comes to shove and she's sleeping with the guy in his group, he just can't handle it. And they keep going. But then in the summer of 66, she starts having an affair with Gene Clark, the lead vocalist of the Birds, And They do a gig, and Gene Clark is sitting in the front row in this bright red and purple suit, and John Phillips sees uh, his wife making eyes at Gene Clark and fires her on the spot, just cannot handle it. And so for like six months from um, July of 66 until October of 66, they bring in this – Woman named Jill Gibson, and we talked about Jill Gibson on the episode we did with uh, Joel Selvin. That was uh, mostly focused on Jan and Dean. And Jill Gibson had been uh, the partner of of Jan, and now I'm forgetting his name. It's Dean Torrance. Um, but she was she was with Jan. I, th- I want to say Barry, but he was the main guy in Jan and Dean. And she had been his partner. And you know, Jan and Dean's number one hit was uh, 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 "Surf City." And the famous chorus, two girls for every boy. And and one night, Jill Gibson's in her massive house that she shares with Jan. And she hears noises. And usually he's in the studio and she hears noises. But she's hearing noises from the other side of the house. So she gets worried somebody's broken in. She goes to their hot tub room. And there's Jan with two girls. So... (laughs) That was enough for her. She leaves Jan and she becomes Lou Adler's girlfriend, and that's when Lou Adler introduces her uh, to John Phillips. And she's a great singer and and, and becomes um, a member of the Mamas and the Papas, and even goes to London with them, and they're the the big hit of the scene. And so it's time for our next song, and, and this is the Mamas and the Papas doing a song called "Strange Young Girls," which. Um, as a, somebody who's been fascinated with the Manson family my whole life, I immediately zeroed in on this song. And according to Michelle Phillips, the the Manson girls were creepy crawling in the alley behind their house and and were a known entity on the Sunset Strip. And so John Phillips writes the song Strange and Girls about, you know, Sadie Mae Glutz and the different Manson girls before Sharon Tate gets killed. So he was. He was aware of of the Manson family, and he put it in song. Strange young girls at the altar of acid. This is the mamas and the papas. strange young girls uh by the mamas and the papas a song i just find unbelievably eerie and and this is one of the songs that sold me on michelle phillips uh, not michelle phillips on john phillips is a songwriting talent this guy had a real gift for observing life and putting it into song and you know in the me too era which i was reading at the beginning of the me too era and i feel like the me too eras kind of ended and, and turned into this hideous uh reactionary backlash but it was a real struggle for me to reconcile my hatred for this guy. Just you know, reading this book, it was a lot like when I read Eugene S. Robinson's memoir. I just found myself hating this guy. And um, at the same time, I was listening to his music for the first time with open ears and really enjoying it and, and admiring his abilities as a songwriter. So it's, it's, it's a complicated thing. And, and, you know, millions of people reacted to, to John Phillips and the group's gifts in a positive way. And they were very much, pre-hippie icons they really laid the groundwork for american culture to embrace or at least youth culture to embrace uh, hippies and the san francisco scene and phillips you know no sooner did the mamas and the papas become one of america's most popular groups but phillips kind of becomes the king of la he called himself the wolf king of la and he's um just a mover and a shaker and and he and lou adler get wind of this plan to organize the Monterey Pop Festival and very quickly move in and take it over and turn it into a a charitable show where none of the acts are getting paid, which is one of the reasons they couldn't get uh, very many black acts. Like Otis Redding is a a big exception. Like Nobody from Motown, even though Smokey Robinson was on their board, um, nobody from Motown came to play. And a lot of it was the money. The, The black acts were just like, You know, they they were working and they wanted to get paid for their work. They weren't going to fall for any kind of uh, free show BS, but it ends up becoming – this mammoth cultural moment when not only does Otis Redding become a star with white America for the first time after, after nearly you know half a decade of, of being at the top of the R&B charts, but not getting a sniff of the pop charts. Um, and it's almost immediately before his unfortunate death, but also the who and Jimi Hendrix breakthrough at, at Monterey, Jimi Hendrix had to go, you know, Hendrix was somebody who'd been on the R&B circuit for years, playing with people like Don Covey and Little Richard, and and you know really putting in his time and woodshedding. But there was really no place in R&B for what Jimi Hendrix really wanted to do, which was combine, you know, the the kind of electric guitar adventurousness that he's hearing coming out of England from people like Dave Davies of the Kinks and uh, you know Jeff Beck of the Yardbirds and others. And he wants to combine that with what Bob Dylan's doing, and he has to go to England to do it. But then they form chess Chandler of 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 the animals becomes his manager they form the experience around jimmy and he's the hottest thing in london and so when they invite andrew legoldum to be on the board of the monterey pop festival and paul mccartney both of those brits were like you've got to get jimmy hendrix on the bill and they do and they also say you've got to get the who on the bill and they do and the who has their first american breakthrough around this time with i can see for miles and miles and Janis Joplin and the San Francisco acts also have big breakthroughs. And Janis Joplin was with big brother in the holding company and they had this massive uh, breakout performance there and she becomes a star and it's filmed for a movie. And so it's a massive concert event. I think, you know, 50 to hundred thousand people see it live, but then it becomes this movie that's released in 68. And so Janis Joplin just becomes a bigger and bigger star over the course of the thing. The problem was that, uh, the mamas and the papas hadn't been rehearsing. They, they had become this studio act. John Phillips is this obsessive perfectionist. And, um, it becomes real torture for them to make music. And they're, you know, they're very divided. They're all four rich and famous. And and Denny Doherty's becoming, you know, a heavy drinker and, and living in a mansion with all these hangers on. And uh, Mama Cass has all these hangers on, including lots of boyfriends that people suspected were just after her for her money. Uh, she gets pregnant and has a baby. She and and uh, John Phillips are just at loggerheads all the time. Michelle Phillips is really bummed out uh, about the experience of having been fired and, you know, doesn't feel like she has any agency in the group after that that john's got her under his thumb completely they reconciled and were living together again and they buy this big mansion in bel-air and uh they have more manson family encounters like when michelle phillips tells the story of one night uh she's looking out the front window and she sees people dressed in black crawling up the driveway to their bel-air mansion and she freaks out and runs and gets john who's in the studio he'd built in the pool house out back And she runs against John Phillips. And John Phillips is this guy who's like 6'5". He's a Navy veteran. He's completely insane and evil. He uh, grabs a shotgun, jumps in his Jeep, which has a big spotlight on it, roars into his comes out the back of the the house and this thing roars up under the driveway spotlights these people that are just creepy crawling into the house you know cocks his shotgun and tells them no in no uncertain terms to to go somewhere else and that was a, apparently tex phillips tex watson i mean and uh and uh susan atkins aka sadie Mae glutz this was the manson family doing a full-on creepy crawl of their house and um You know, they learned not to come back to John Phillips' house because Dude was uh, scarier than they were. Um, Anyway, but let's take a sponsor break. When we come back, I'll talk about uh, the collapse of the band and what John Phillips did afterwards.
3: Hey, Pantheon listeners, Christian Swain here. You caught me just finishing up some editing on Getting Real with John and Beth. I want to share my first experience with Factor Meals for you. I think you'll find this interesting because I bet the same thing happens to you.
0: Listen now, go to AmericanCriminal.com or search for and follow American Criminal wherever you get your podcasts.
1: And
2: we're back to continue talking about John Phillips and the rest of the mamas and the papas. And so the group continues to have hits uh, sporadically, but there's definitely a feeling that they're behind the times and that they're um, he's struggling to keep up. And he's this obsessive perfectionist and, and, you know, it's one thing to compete with, like, the birds and the turtles and the leaves and the grassroots and the, the L.A. folk rock scene and, and Bob Dylan. But just one year later, it's 1967, and suddenly they're competing with Sergeant Peppers and Jimi Hendrix and um, – you know, even the Rolling Stones are having trouble keeping up in this in this this rapidly changing time. And all the San Francisco bands. I mean, the Jefferson Airplane explodes out of San Francisco with Somebody to Love and White Rabbit. Grace Slick is suddenly, you know, um, this dark haired, pretty o- openly evil or openly rebellious singer, and and very much a counterpoint to Mama Cass and Michelle Phillips. And 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 then you get Janis Joplin who won't get an album out on a major label until 1968, but big brother and the holding company are touring and a very big deal. And, um, another group from San Francisco, a favorite of mine, um, Moby grape actually tours briefly with the mamas and the papas and their show is so exciting. And, and, You know, vibrant that that John Phillips kicked him off the bill after just a few gigs. This is one of several stumbles that causes Moby Grape to go from the next big thing to uh, who were they that, you know, uh, Monterey Pop Festival played a role in that because um, at one point their manager – is insisting that if, if they're going to be filmed, they want $100,000 cash and all these other demands. And basically, John Phillips and Lou Adler just told him to get stuffed, and they moved them off the bill. Moby Grape was supposed to be one of the headliners uh, on Saturday night, and they moved them to the very opening slot of the entire festival. And so they basically get no attention at all from Monterey Pop. And it's just one of several stumbles that brings Moby Grape uh, down. Um, and and they never, you know, uh, have a hit. But me, anyway, back to the 67. And also Jim Morrison and The Doors have had a massive hit with Light My Fire. So it's very difficult for John Phillips to keep up. But nonetheless, um, they do uh, manage to, to to have hits. But they're, you know, they go from a band that, that – Their first three singles are all top 10. Their fourth single uh, only goes to the top 30. Then they have another top five single. Then their version of Dancing in the Streets flops only gets to number 73. And so uh, they cover the five royals and do a song called Dedicated to the One I Love. And that makes it to number two. But that also elevates Mama Cass because she's clearly um, the big... The big singer on that. And then they do a self referential song called Creek Alley, which tells the story of the Mamas and the Papas. And again, I think it's just brilliant lyric writing from John Phillips. And That becomes uh, a pretty big hit at number five. But then their next single goes to number 20, the next one to 26. Uh, Then they have a song called Dancing Bear that only makes it to number 51, Safe in My Garden, 53. And then they uh, have one last single, Dream a Little Dream of Me, that's basically a Mama Cass solo song. And it goes to number 12 and really primes her for a solo career. And the group is just falling apart. Denny Doherty's a total alcoholic by this point michelle phillips and john are at each other's throats and john phillips has discovered cocaine and you know they've got two of the biggest noses in hollywood um snorting away and it, it's it's a it's a fascinating book if you like scrollless gossip i mean there's things like um and i'm blanking on the name of the director but uh there was a director who had kind of directed bridget Bardot's movies and then he marries jane fonda and and directs barbarella and and you know and according to John Phillips and Michelle Phillips both, uh, they had a fivesome with um, I think it's Roger Vadim was the director, this this handsome, studly French movie director, Jane Fonda at the peak of her beauty, uh, and Warren Beatty shows up. And then John and Michelle decide, well, what the heck? Let's party and and you know, have this big five-way orgy. So that this is the kind of life they're living where it's celebrity access to the nth degree, and um You know, and their kids are living in this with no chaperoning or filter. I mean, the cocaine's just left out on the table. The kids come in, you know, don't get in my cocaine, kids. You know, you've got your own pot allowance, you know, and that kind of that was his idea of strict parenting. And, and, you know, things happen like, you know, Mackenzie Phillips has alleged that Mick Jagger uh, seduced her when she was 13 or 14 uh, years old. Maybe she was 15. I can't remember. But and don't sue me, sir, Mick. That was Mackenzie that said that not me i have no idea if that's true or not but it does have the ring of truth and it's a very believable story and you know this is just this kind of unfettered uh lifestyle that they're living anyway Cass Elliot has this hit she's very successful on variety shows and she's becoming more and more of a star in her own right so the band breaks up and you know they do a fourth album and and that flops and Cass Elliot tries to go solo and she is so strung out and you know she's been dieting these crazy binge diets and she she basically wrecks her health and John Phillips and Michelle go to Vegas to support her for her big Vegas debut and this is before Elvis even played Vegas so va- rock and roll in Vegas have not come to terms yet and um it turns out that that Mama Cass has been so obsessed with her figure that she's wrecked her health she hasn't rehearsed an act she hasn't been singing um the people that are you know her music director uh is not john phillips is like this this is not working cash you need to not do the show and she goes ahead and does it and it's a flop it's a disaster she pretty much collapses on stage and uh you know it, it it she does manage to build some of her solo career back but uh it's not what it could have been because of that big flop at um vegas but here's a single that she put out early in her solo career that i really am fond of this is california earthquake by mama cass Was a Mama a solo single California Earthquake? The band has broken up, but they owe uh, Dunhill one more album, and it's Dunhill's been bought by ABC at this point. And you know Lou Adler's not necessarily directly in charge anymore, and there's a lot of pressure on uh, the Mamas and the Papas. They're going to get sued for hundreds of thousands of dollars if they don't do one more album. So they do one final album uh, in the early '70s, People Like Us, that that totally flops, and. Um, and overshadows John Phillips' solo album, The Wolf King of L.A., which is a really brilliant album. Denny Doherty was bitter to his dying day that John Phillips didn't bring those songs to the Mamas and the Papas. He thought they were the best set of songs that John Phillips ever wrote, and he didn't feel like John Phillips had the singing voice to handle the lead vocals. I kind of agree. Um, we'll hear a song from that at the end of the show. I mean, it's just fun to imagine what Denny Doherty uh, and, and Cass Elliott could have done with these songs. And And this is where I learned to appreciate a harmony group because somebody like Denny Doherty, you know, when you're a guitarist in a band, you can be replaced pretty easily. Instrumentalists are pretty fungible and, you know, only the very rare virtuosos or somebody like, you know, Willie Nelson's guitar style, there are very few people that have this incredibly recognizable, unique instrumental sound. You know, you could swap out George Harrison for Keith Richards uh, pretty easily on, on the Beatle and Stone's early parts, I think, early records. Um, but you can't replace a harmony vocalist. And somebody like Denny Doherty, somebody like Cass Elliott, somebody like Michelle Phillips, they all had these unique voices and, and it brought their personality to bear. And that's when it clicked for me. Ah, this is what a harmony vocal group is about. This is why it's a big deal. And it immediately opened up worlds for me. Like suddenly I could I could appreciate and really dig the Temptations and the Supremes in a whole new way. I'd always appreciated uh, the songwriting and and the the Funk Brothers and the arrangements and the lead vocals, but I'd never really appreciated the harmony singing and the personalities and the way that the, the different personalities of the harmony group come forward. And and after the Mamas and the Papas opened my ears to that, you know, suddenly I could appreciate the Beach Boys in a whole new way, the Beatles, all of Motown. It it, it suddenly made sense, and I could even appreciate things like Boys to Men. And in sync and and K-pop. And, and and it, you know, it was a big moment for me uh, in my musical appreciation and, and opening up new horizons. I'm always looking for new old music. And this really opened my my mind. And I'm fascinated by things that have they give me conflicting emotions. And John Phillips definitely gave me conflicting emotions because you know, as a as a child of a single mother growing up in the 70s, I'm really bitter about neglectful parents. Not that my mom was neglectful, but she's putting herself through college, raising six kids, etc. Cetera, et cetera. She was busy, and I had a lot of time on my hands. And I was actually looked after better than I realized. But that aunts and uncles had their eyes on me, and big brothers and sister were looking out for me too. But nonetheless, I still got myself into some situations that I wish I hadn't. And reading about what McKinsey and China Phillips and all the other children of, of John uh, Phillips went through was pretty enraging and you know it, it, it because I'm he had added to the fascination of the music and you know Phillips becomes a, a movie music songwriter and and TV I think he wrote the soundtrack for for uh, Brewster McCloud and various different movies and then he spends a fortune trying to put on a Broadway musical with his second wife uh, Genevieve and uh, let's go ahead and hear our last song this is um, Let It Bleed Genevieve which is a song John Phillips wrote about uh, his second wife or third wife uh, Genevieve miscarrying their child
3: Conceiving life again
0: Up on the
1: sidewalk A replacement Waiting to
2: Not was Let It Bleed Genevieve by John Phillips from his solo album Wolf King of LA. And I mean you can I think hear why he didn't become one of the big singer-songwriters in the early seventies, and also because the Mamas and the Papas got so famous in 1966 and 67, they were kind of frozen in time. Mama Cass was able to kind of sidestep that by becoming a traditional showbiz personality. Sonny and Cher were doing the same thing at the same time, and uh, you know variety shows were a huge thing. Uh, things like Laugh In and The Tonight Show and The Merv Griffin Show, and uh, you know on and on, there were dozens of, of t- TV talk variety shows that you could perform on, and Mama Cass became this beloved American figure in that venue but john phillips was stuck very much with the whole peace love where flowers in your hair kind of hippy dippy thing that was obsolete by 1968 and by 1971 nobody wanted to hear that kind of shit so um you know phillips just ends up being left behind but being john phillips he he um you know manages to make a new career for himself in, in movie soundtrack and tv soundtracks and has plenty of money left over, you know. All through the seventies, I think he he said he had like a, a six figure income from the royalties on his songwriting uh, for the Mamas of the papas and and Scott McKenzie and the Kingston Trio, et cetera, et cetera. But he spends all that money on cocaine, and then he starts hanging out with uh, Keith Richards and Mick Jagger, and he's going to do a, a solo album produced by those two. And you know that was a pretty big deal in the mid seventies, and there was you know record company interest, and they recorded most of an album but didn't finish it and came away with a raging heroin habit to go with his already raging cocaine habit. And that's when he becomes a full-on criminal and organizes this massive drug ring and uses his celebrity really cynically to lure these family pharmacists. I mean, he literally targeted pharmacists who are Mamas and the Papas fans and, and cultivates these friend, quote-unquote friendly relationships with these guys. And then dupes these people and, you know, maybe they knew the score and they were corrupt pharmacists and, and, you know, I mean, they did it. They, they gave him, you know, he would get blank prescription forms from doctors and he'd, you know, fill up, fill them out, or at least they'd have the book of prescription forms. And that's what busted him was they were very sloppy about filling him out. So, you know, he would walk in to the pharmacy with a bag of, uh, street heroin and walk out and trade that for pharmaceutical grade cocaine and you know dilaudid and, and all these other substances that he could sell in the street at a big profit and then pay for his own heroin and you know the circle continues all the way up until the time that uh, the Henry Hill helicopters are circling outside his door you know having read Keith Richards memoir about where Richards describes this time in his life, because Richards is about to get busted in Toronto in 1978 uh, for heroin and and was looking at serious hard prison time. And there's a period uh, when Richards is living in Long Island and and hanging out with John Phillips quite a bit. And they're both living in mansions that they've allowed to go completely decrepit, like Marlon Richards' Uh, was a 10-year-old child living with his grandfather, Burt Richards, in his house in Long Island where the bottom floor was completely abandoned and derelict. And they had an elevator up to the second floor, which was their living quarters, but – The bills weren't always paid. There wasn't always power. The water, you know, sometimes the plumbing would be out and that kind of stuff. So they're living in this, you know, decadent millionaire squalor. And John Phillips's kids are in a similar situation, even though Mackenzie Phillips by this time has grown up and become a sitcom star in Hollywood, which was really the last thing she needed because she managed to parlay that into a completely raging uh, Coke habit. And Phillips, um, as part of his PR campaign to declare himself rehabbed and better, he puts together – he gets two of his kids and Danny Doherty, and then they get Spanky from Spanky and our gang to replace Cass Elliot, and they put together a new Mamas and the Papas, and they do the talk show rounds, and they talk about – he talks about how he's cleaned up and and he's sober, and Mackenzie talks about how she's cleaned up and she's sober. And meanwhile, uh, they're smoking crack every night and having this incestuous affair, which Phillips doesn't admit to. That's only come out since he died, and McKinsey um, uh, made that a public statement. Now, other members of the family, including Michelle Phillips and China Phillips, have all, all vociferously denied that that happened, but I they weren't there. <laughs> and so I think you got to give some credence to McKinsey Phillips. I mean, who tells a story like that on themselves if they're not true? And then you go, well, it's Mackenzie Phillips. So maybe she did it. I have no idea if it's true or not. I, I I wouldn't put it past her to make it up because just like the Mick Jagger story, I have no idea if that's true or not. I probably shouldn't have even mentioned it on the show. Um, but anyway, unreliable narrators everywhere you look in this story. And, uh, you know, that's pretty much my John Phillips story. This, this guy, um, was this incredibly gifted songwriter incredibly gifted harmony arranger and who absolutely captured the zeitgeist in 1966 and 67 of folk rock turning into flower power, that he was the avatar of that, or really Cass Elliott was the avatar of that, Michelle Phillips and, and the whole group. Um, and they were, avatars of a particular moment in time. Oh, there's one last story I want to tell, which is that Sly Stone ends up buying the Bel Air mansion from John Phillips. First, he rents it from him. Then he leases it and then he buys it, but he keeps missing so many payments and, and somehow Phillips ends up getting more than the value of the house out of Sly Stone, just because Sly Stone is so disorganized and so coked up. And, Slystone has pit bulls and I believe a baboon or some kind of monkey that lived on the roof of the house and would terrorize people in the driveway. But he also says that he would find things in that house. Like John Phillips didn't clean up any of his crap. He just let Slystone move in with all of John and Michelle's personal belongings in the house including diaries. Uh tapes of demos and you know recording stuff drug paraphernalia drugs all in the house but sly stone was freaked out because he would find things like a closet a big walk-in closet that had been painted completely red with pentagrams and devil shit in there and it really freaked sly stone out and this is around the time when sly stone is so freaked out that like miles davis would come over to the house and be in the waiting room you know, waiting for slide to come down and he'd be playing chords. And if, as long as he was playing, you know, major and minor chords, Sly was fine, but then he'd start playing you know, 11ths and 9ths, and Sly felt that that was devil chords, and, and would run down, one time ran down screaming, you know, who's playing them damn devil chords on the piano? Get out of my house, get out of my house, and throws Miles Davis out of the house, where he's then menaced by the pit bulls and monkeys, uh, jumping off the roof and <laughs> barely escapes with his life. So anyway, this is the kind of craziness that John Phillips is at the nexus of, where he's scaring sly stone i mean sly stone scared a ton of people like and the family stone uh there's a story about them beating up three dog night uh one one time i mean these are are pretty rough and ready dudes and you know we did the sly stone episode with joel selvin and he's you know running with pimps and drug dealers from the from his neighborhood in oakland where he grew up and these people are all afraid of John Phillips. So <laughs> that's that's John Phillips for you. And, and uh, I'm Neil Cox. This has been Let It Roll. Our book was Papa John by John Phillips with Jen Jerome. We've been telepathically questioning them about the show since they both passed on to the Next World. And also Michelle Phillips, California Dreamin'. Hope you enjoy the show.
1: Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast. And check out our website at letterallpodcast.com. Thursday, we'll be back with another musical nightmare. Literal is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.pantheonpodcast.com.